so here's the thing I wanted to do before we dive in. I wanted to take a moment for us to bow our heads and pray together. And here's what I'd like to pray for. There's a lot of stuff in this world we know. Sorry, I'm not praying yet. Some <laughs> you kind of bowing your heads. This, this is the pre-prayer, the pre-prayer. There's a lot of stuff, right? Like we spend a lot of times praying together for the mess of life, all the stuff we navigate and, and the pain and the brokenness. But I don't want us to miss opportunities to celebrate and praise God for the blessings of life. And a childbirth, it just, there's something about it, the miracle of life that is so cool. And so would you now bow your heads with me and, and let's just thank God for his presence in the miracle of life. God, yeah, we are so excited for the Gertzes, for this fourth child of theirs, and, and we just, on behalf of them, thank you for the miracle of life. Thank you for this child and uh, that he's healthy and that Davy's healthy. And I pray that these next few uh, weeks together as they take some time off and hunker down together as a family would just be so, so, so sweet. Bind them together. Create a neat new sense of unity uh, with them. And Lord, as we begin to dive into scripture and go over the Sermon on the Mount this morning, would you open up our hearts and our minds to see you? What were you teaching? Why were you teaching and 2,000 years later, what do you want us to hear? What do you want us to learn? And I pray that as a result of today, we'd walk away changed people. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I, as I said, we're kicking off the series called The Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in this for several weeks. Um, if you don't know, The Sermon on the Mount is widely thought of as the most famous sermon Jesus ever gave. If he was standing up here, I don't know if he would identify with that. He might be like, dude, I gave some really good ones. I don't know. It was good. I don't know if it's that good. But theologians, people that talk Bible all the time, they look at this as like, this is the most well-known and probably the most famous sermon he ever gave. And today specifically, we're going to look at the first 10 verses of the Sermon on the Mount. They're referred to as the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes. They all start with B, blessed, blessed are, and then there's these eight characteristics, these eight character traits that Jesus goes through with his disciples as he's teaching them. But I want to step back. I want to just kind of pull back and get big picture perspective for a second, okay? So can we do that before we dive in? I want you to understand, I think it's so important to context, and why is he doing what he's doing? Why is he jumping into the sermon where he is. So here's the context. Jesus has just moved to a new town, to a new city called Capernaum. This is what will become known as the home base of his ministry. It's where he kind of sets up shop and establishes his ministry. And he's doing three things. Number one, he's going around to the synagogues and teaching, teaching the God-fearers, the teachers, the rabbis, the religious elite. And the message he is teaching is not a super popular one. He is saying, repent and turn from your sin. The kingdom of heaven is near. That is what he's choosing to say. I don't think he had read Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People Yet. He's going in and getting in their face and saying, you, God fears, turn from your ways, repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. While he's doing that, he's building his team. He's calling the disciples to join him. And so he's forming, he's forming this group of people that for the next three years will be his right-hand guys. And the third thing he's doing is he's going public with his healing ministry. If you know the, the teachings of Jesus, you'll remember that he performed some miracles early on that he asked people, like, hey, sh keep this on the download. Don't go talk about this, all right? Just keep this one chill. 
but he is now taking the lid off the box and the end of uh, Matthew chapter 4, right before we get into chapter 5 where we'll be today, the end of Matthew 4, he's saying, Matthew says this in verse 23, Jesus healed every disease and sickness among the people. Goes on to say in verse 24, and whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon possessed or epileptic, epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Catch that, all. Every, there isn't one person that was brought to him that he did not heal. So you can imagine, again, stepping back and looking at the context just before the greatest sermon Jesus ever had, what's happening? He's stirring things up with the religious and teaching a message of repentance, getting in their face, and he's healing hundreds, perhaps thousands of people. And you can imagine, word starts to travel. People are like, hey, you got to see this dude. He's getting in the face of the religious leaders. He's going to the synagogue, stirring stuff up. And by the way, he's healing hundreds of people, paralyzed people, demon-possessed people, people that can't walk, that can't see. This is crazy. you got to get here. And that's what leads us into what we're going to talk about today, the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and the beginning of the Beatitudes. And how many of you know that introductions are important. The very first words are important. So what would Jesus choose to say at the very beginning of what will become his most famous message? That's what we're going to dive into. So the crowds are gathering. Things are getting crazy. Here comes Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. What do you think he began to teach them? What do you think Jesus feels like he needs to say in this moment to his core team, the ones that have just joined him and they're just about to go for a wild and crazy ride? I think he's sitting there going, hey guys, I know this is crazy. I know you aren't guys with PhDs in organizational behavior or crowd management or leadership dev, right? I know that you're probably thinking, dude, it's super cool to be an early adopter and be like, hey, I'm with this guy. I'm with him, which if you know the end of the story later, they'd be like, no, I'm not with that guy. I'm not with him, no. But right now they're amped. I'm with this guy. This is crazy. That guy that's doing all, I'm on the inner circle. But the crowds are pressing in, and they're probably starting to freak out. Like, what do we do? Oh, my gosh, this is getting out of control. And being the good leader that Jesus is, he, pull, he pulls away, and he brings his team in, and he sits down, as was common for rabbis to do when they would teach. And he'd say, here's what you need to know. And he's about to flip everything they had ever learned on its head. And I think in many ways, I hope he's going to do the same thing for us here this morning. So he goes into the Beatitudes, these eight blessings. If you grew up in church, it's blessed, right? We don't use that word anymore. So blessed, blessed are. And he goes through eight character traits that are blessed. Interesting word, thing about this word blessed. There's a lot of different ways to be blessed, to receive a blessing throughout Scripture. There's different Greek and Hebrew words that are used. But there's a very specific word Jesus is using here, and it's makarios. It's a Greek word, makarios, and it means fortunate and happy, fully satisfied. 
So what Jesus is about to do, what he thinks is the most important thing to teach his disciples at the beginning of what is going to be a massive movement. There's going to be highs and there's going to be lows and there's going to be everything in between. You're going to suffer. You're going to rejoice. It's about to get nuts. But don't let any of that mess with you. I want you to understand from the very beginning, this is where happiness comes from. This is where happiness comes from. He chooses to teach his disciples a message about happiness. And I just want you to hear this because this is important. Sometimes we don't feel like we talk about this a lot or hear about this a lot at church. Jesus wants you to be happy. If you grew up in church like I did, you'd be like, wait a second. No, you're not supposed to try and be happy. You're supposed to try and be holy, right? Holiness is the thing you're supposed to desire. But when did those two become mutually exclusive? There's a false dichotomy there that you can't be holy and happy at the same time. And we have such an incredible opportunity. These crowds are pressing in and forming. Like I said, it could be up to thousands of people. But because of scripture, we have an opportunity to be on the inner circle with, these, with this small group and lean in at his feet and hear exactly what he says about this false dichotomy of happiness and holiness. So you ready to dive in with me? Okay, you're like, let's get to it. Yes, let's go. Here's the thing, though. There's so much. There's so much. There's 10 verses. We've got eight left to go. And um, I actually wrote two sermons. The first one, I was going to just focus on one of the Beatitudes and really draw it out because I feel like there's so much meat in each of these. But then, as I step back Thursday, literally, I'm like, I got to start over. I got to rewrite it because I don't want us to miss the overarching theme, the big picture, as cool as it is to drill in and geek out on specific things, I think what I really hope for us today is that we'll see the big picture of this. So as we go through these, I'm going to rapid fire them. It's going to be a lot of information. I'm going to try and extrapolate just a little bit of of, uh, insight on each one of them. But here's what I want to ask of you. As we go through this, look for a theme. Look for a common denominator that all of these have in common. And when we come around at the end, I'm going to ask that question again. What's the common denominator? And I think, I hope, and this isn't just pastor speak to build up the talk and get in. I truly believe that if we focus on these teachings of Jesus on how to be happy, it will change our lives. It could truly revolutionize our lives and set us on a new course for how we want to pursue and live out the rest of our lives. So here we go. The context is... The crowds are pressing in. Jesus brings his team up to the hillside. He sits down and he begins to teach them. And here's the first blessing. Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And right out of the gate, he's shattering what they thought they knew. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not blessed are the rich. Not blessed are the poor. Not blessed are the happy, the ones with good jobs, good marriages, the kids. Blessed are you if you don't have kids, if you know what I mean. You know, like, that's not what he's doing. He's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know what the poor in spirit are? The poor in spirit are people that acknowledge, no matter what, where they're at in life, what their circumstances are, how much or how little they have. The poor in spirit acknowledge that they are completely dependent on God and that everything originates and comes from him. That's who the poor in spirit are. No matter how much you have, you're no less dependent on God than you were when you had absolutely nothing. 
You put your trust in riches. This is what Jesus knew, what he understood. The moment you put your trust in riches, instead of him who richly provides, you become unhappy. And here's why. Because suddenly, it's up to you to control the outcomes. And you weren't designed to control the outcomes. You know this about yourself. I know this about myself. We can't control anything. We can influence things. We can have a say in things. But when it comes right down to it, we can't control outcomes. And Jesus knew this. And so he just said, don't try. Happy are the ones that just know that it all comes from me. And that your happiness is not swayed depending on where you're at in life or what you have, what sea is rolling in. You keep your eyes on me. You keep your eyes on me. Be poor in spirit. He goes on to say in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. <laughs> are you like, are you kidding me? Like, how are mourning people happy, period? Isn't that the, period of, uh, the purpose of mourning is you're sad? That doesn't seem like happy, you know? So again, we're only the second one in, and Jesus is messing with all of our minds. But here's what a mourner is. A mourner is emotionally connected to people. They're people who recognize good, bad, unjust, the randomness of life, that they live in it. They embrace it. They immerse themselves into it. They understand that God gives and he takes away and they're not afraid to hurt. They're not afraid to love. They're not afraid to be love. And if I can just step back for a second and say, I think this is something that we as a church, Arbor Church, does really, really well. Really well. Just Thursday night, I was here and there was, I, I think, over 30 people, volunteers that showed up in this building for a care team training. If you don't know what that is, the care team is a volunteer team that is purposed with this exact thing, to mourn with those who mourn, to love people outlandishly, extravagantly, to go above and beyond and meet people in their place of need and care for them and love them. I think you guys do this as a church extraordinarily well, and I'm really, really proud of that. Um, Allison, who is up here and... Uh, introduced today's message. Um, I've watched her be a walking, living, breathing example of this. I think she has walked through a season of life so eloquently as she um, went and cared for her mom, as she transitioned from this life into eternity, as she walked side by side caring for her aging dad. But in the midst of all of that, in the pain, in the loss, in the exhaustion, I've not seen her for a moment lose her joy or her perspective on the bigger picture of life. And it's just this incredibly beautiful balance. And that is what the people who mourn, blessed are the mourn, who dive into the pain, who aren't afraid of dying, who aren't afraid of pain, because Jesus knew this. The minute you step into fear, you lose the ability to actually live. When you're fearful of death, you can't actually live and enjoy life. And hello, he's saying, I created you to be happy, to enjoy, to makarios, be full, fulfilled. It's a wonderful thing. You just don't get there how you think. He goes on, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. <laughs> what does meekness rhyme with? Weakness. This is not a popular term in today's culture, right? I'm the dad of two daughters, 
any other dads of daughters out there, perhaps you'll relate to this. I'm not praying that someday my daughters will grow up and meet a meek man that sweeps them off their feet, you know? Like, that just doesn't sound very cool and romantic to me. I'm praying that they're going to meet a strong, self-assured, God-loving, God-fearing person who has a good job, who makes a lot of money, who will take care of them, and help me retire early, okay? It's a very noble prayer. Don't worry about it. But God's saying, hey, you guys misunderstand this word meek. It's not weak. A meek person is not a weak person. Here's a working definition, if you will, for meekness. Meekness is a proper estimation or valuation of oneself within the broader context of God's creation and love. A proper estimation of oneself. What does that mean? It means this. You understand that you were created by God on purpose and for purpose. Hear that. You are here for a reason. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. I hope that sets in for you. But you're not the center of the universe. And meek people know that they have a confidence in themselves of who they are and whose they are, but they don't get wrapped up around thinking the world revolves around them. That is a meek person. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those. I love this. Maybe it's because I'm on a New Year's diet and I'm hungry. I don't know. But I love this. This verbiage uses who hunger and thirst. They yearn for. They're passionate about righteousness. Blessed are those, he's saying, who are committed to doing the right thing. No matter how hard, no matter how unpopular, no matter how cool, no matter whether you make friends or lose friends over it, blessed are those who are committed to making the right decision. Happy are those with no guilt, no regret, no shame. Come on, you don't have to raise your hand. Doesn't that sound nice, though? Doesn't that living life without regret, without guilt and shame? I mean, how much time have we just wasted and lost through those feelings of ours. And Jesus is saying, you want to be happy? Make the hard decision. Make the right decision. Our greatest regrets, our greatest regrets in life stem from us making decisions to say yes to things when we know we should say no. Our greatest regrets come from making the wrong decision. We know that. We don't look back on life and say, man, if I could change that and have that regret all over again, I'd do it. None of us do that. Jesus says, you don't have to live that way. You don't have to feel that way. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are committed to doing the right thing, those are the ones that will be truly happy in life. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What's mercy? What's Jesus saying here? I love this. I love this. Happy are the relationally generous. These are people who give what's undeserved. They're not seeking revenge. They're not seeking payback. They're not saying, I'll do this for you if you do that for me. Blessed are the relationally generous. Are you seeing a theme here by chance? This isn't the common denominator I teased you about earlier, but, but I don't want to go any further without pointing this out. These are eight blessings of happy people. 
characteristics that lead to happiness. We've got something that these people sitting at his feet learning didn't have at that time. They're on the front end of something. They're meeting this guy. They're putting their trust in this guy, Jesus, right? There's something to it, but they don't know the end of the story yet. And right now we have the benefit of hindsight. We know that each one of these things that we're reading through right now are the characteristics of him, our leader, our God, our king. What they don't know and we know is that as we read through these, we can look and go, this is what it means to follow Jesus. These are his character traits. Not only is he teaching them this, but he is about for the next three or so years to model every single one of these out for him and show him a new way of life. Everything you thought you knew, everything you learned, control things, you know, work your way, do invest, you know, all these conventional things. That's not it. And I'm going to show you a different way. And it's not going to be an easy way, but it's going to be awesome and true fulfillment and happiness. So I don't want us to miss. These are the characteristics of Jesus, of Jesus. Jesus this blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. This right here, in a few short words, is the gospel. Jesus, the one guy that got it right, the one perfect person, came to us who were in the wrong and extended us something we didn't deserve. That is the story of the gospel. And he says, if you identify yourself with me and act as I act, I will show you mercy too. I want you to treat others the way I'm treating you right now. This next one, verse 8, uh, is perhaps one of the most underlooked passages in all of the New Testament, perhaps even all of the Bible. In this one verse, this is why it was so hard for me to go big picture on all these, because each one of these is so meaty. There's so much good stuff. But if I've lost your attention or whatever, will you just wake up for one second? I'm not offended if you're taking a nap, okay? I do it too. But I don't want you to miss this one. So look up here for a second. This next one, what Jesus is about to do, he's baiting us in. He's baiting us in. Hey, do you want to see God? Do you want to see God? Do you want to have clarity in your life on how to make the tough decisions? Do you want to know how to navigate that relationship? Do you want to know how to navigate your finances? Do you want to know what job you should take? Do you want to know the purpose on your life and what I created you to accomplish in this time? To which we all would nod, yeah, that'd be amazing. If I had insight into that, yeah, I'd love that. Give me that, give me that. He's baiting us in. Oh, you want to know that? You want to see God? You want to understand God? Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The pure in heart. What does that mean? Purity isn't a real cool word these days. It's not something we talk about a whole lot, right? Outside of water, right? You got pure water, you've got a water purifier on your fridge, you know? Like that's the only time we use the word purity anymore. It's not a cool word. But Jesus is saying something revolutionary here. And this is why Jake and I wanted to show a movie last weekend. It's not because we were tired, it was lazy, it's because we couldn't find anything in this 2,000-page book to uh, you know, talk about. We weren't out of content. We understand that this idea of purity is under attack. It's being assaulted. That the enemy knows that this is one of the greatest ways that we can 
see and experience the tangible love of God in our lives. And he wants to confuse it. And he wants to twist it around. And we don't want Arbor to be a church where we just come to and we kind of come in our clean press shirt and our nice shoes and you, know, you put on your Sunday best clothes and pretend like everything's okay. Because we know it's not. Jesus knew it wasn't. That's why he's teaching this stuff. And it's our jobs as pastors to teach it back to you guys. We know stuff's broken and under attack and that the enemy wants to confuse all this. And so Jesus right here is inviting us into a conversation and saying, you want to see God? The pure in heart will see God. If you can picture, I wish I, wish I, I thought of this before and had uh, an example to hold up here and show you or a picture on the screen. I don't. So if you could just visualize in your mind, since I brought up the water example, visualize two glasses of water. One of them is the kind you see in pictures that come from underdeveloped parts of Africa where they go and they fetch this water and it's full of sediment. It's dirty. It's brown. There's mosquitoes buzzing around these muddy ponds that this water comes from. And then picture ours that comes out of the faucet, out of one of our purifiers, and it's crystal clear. One of them you can see through, one of them you can't. And Jesus is saying to us, look, you know what? You don't have to experience everything in life to understand life. It's the opposite of that. And he knew that when we make these decisions that add guilt, that add shame, that add regret, it begins to put sediment, spiritual sediment, into our hearts, into our minds, into our soul, and we no longer can see as clear as we used to see. And the more time goes on, and the more we experience life, and the more we make bad decisions, the more cloudy the water gets. And Jesus is saying, the pure in heart are like this glass of water with no sediment, just clear. You can see through it. There's nothing in the way so that the image of God, the voice of God travels through it perfectly and you will hear it with clarity. Come on, that's incredible. That's incredible. And it just happens to make a lot of sense too, doesn't it? Jesus is a pretty smart guy the way he's setting this all up and the way he's teaching his team. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. He goes on, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called children of God. What he's saying here is happy are the reconcilers, those who go to people with whom they don't have peace with and make peace with them. They initiate. They don't sit on their offenses. They take initiative and they make peace. How timely is this? Our world is not at peace. We're coming off the heels of Martin Luther King weekend. This conversation of reconciliation is, is uh, larger than it has been my entire life. You know, we thought we had all this stuff behind us, and then, oh, I guess not. Ballistic missile threats on the island of Hawaii, right? Um, the Me Too movement. I mean, just even if you're hiding under a rock, you can't avoid this stuff. This is a crazy time in human history, and especially in the, nation, in the history of the American nation. And that's just, that's just nationally. What about us? What are we feeling inside? Most of us don't feel at peace all the time, but Jesus is saying, blessed are the ones that go and initiate. And what if we as a church, what if this is what we were known for? What if we did a great job at this, of not saying, hey, 
you did this, that's not fair. We just became known as these people that were agents of reconciliation. One of God's names, and names are important. Jokes aside, it's why Jake and Davey are probably taking their time to name their son because they know names are important. One of the names God gives to himself is El Shalom, the God of peace. One of the names of Jesus is the Prince of Peace. They're identifying who, this is their name. It's who they are. They are peace. And so when we, as followers of Jesus, are agents of peace, agents of reconciliation, we align ourselves with the very essence, the very nature of God. And he says, when you identify with me, I will identify with you, and I will call you my children. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. All right, you still with me? We're on the last one. Home stretch, landing gear coming down. Okay, we're on our descent. Hang in there. This is good stuff. It's good, good stuff. Up to this point, I think we can kind of grasp these ideas. It's not easy. I get that, but we can get it, right? The purity thing, I get that. Yep. When, when my life gets muddied, it's harder to see through. The, pure, the, the poor in spirit, yeah, the world doesn't revolve around me. I get it. Merciful, I get it. But this is the one where we just slam our feet on the brakes and go, well, dude, now, Jesus, you're going a little bit too far. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Huh? Persecuted, happiness, pers- those don't, I'm not, come on. Those don't go together. Those are mutually exclusive. But here's what Jesus is saying, what he's getting to, and it becomes really clear throughout the entire New Testament. You're going to suffer in life, okay? I know this is a message about happiness, but this is the thing. Jesus is trying to tell you in the midst of all of it, here's how to be happy. You're going to suffer. Life's going to throw you some curveballs. Some gnarly stuff's going to happen. You're either going to suffer for making the right decisions or you're going to suffer for making the wrong decisions. Here's the key. You can only be happy on one side of that equation. You hear me? We're going to suffer. But you can only be happy on one side of the coin. And that is if you make the choice to, be, to pursue the right decision. Do you want to be mistreated for doing the right thing? Or do you want to be mistreated for doing the wrong thing? Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those. Happy are those when they're persecuted for doing the right thing. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's absolutely brilliant because when you're mistreated, the consequences uh, for, you know, you're mistreated for doing the right thing. What Jesus is saying is you can still maintain your peace. But if you're persecuted on the other side of the equation, there is no peace. There is no happiness in any of it. Isn't that so good? So good. All these things, these eight things that he's teaching them. And later, as we know, as I said, will walk out and model for them in his whole life. And I said as we started off, I wanted you to look as we went through this for a common thread, common theme, a common denominator. I don't know if you caught it or not, but here's what I see. And this is the big point I wanted to make today as you look through this. Happiness is an outcome. 
Happiness is an outcome. It's about something now that leads to something later. Happiness is more about the ultimate than the immediate. Because happiness is not immediately accessible. And this is actually good news, okay? I'm not here to bum you out. But think with me, for you, uh, if you will, for a moment, uh, a farming analogy. And, and back here, when it was an agrarian society, they, uh, Scripture uses a lot of farming, agriculture analogies, so I think it fits. Picture planting a seed, whatever it's for. If you do a little you know, raised bed of gardening and herbs and whatever at home, or you're just planting tulips for the spring, whatever it is you're planting, you're planting a seed. You're doing that as an investment for something to happen in the future. You understand when you plant that seed, when you plant that bulb in the ground, you don't have a flower, you don't have rosemary, you don't, what, you know, you don't have corn on the cob, like now. It takes time. It takes nurturing. And it's understanding that in a couple seasons from now, it will come to fruition, and it will grow, and it will be beautiful, and you will be able to enjoy it. And that's what Jesus is saying on the beginning of this journey that we're about to go on together. This is going to be a wild ride. But if you start now, here's what you can enjoy for the rest of your life. So whether you're here today and you're in your 20s or you're in your 70s, it's never too late to start. It's never too late to start. Even if you've got a lot of pain and a lot of brokenness, Jesus is bringing you in through Scripture to his feet on the side of a mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee and saying, I want to take you on a credible journey with me. And I want you to enjoy it. My pastor growing up had this great thing he would say. You remember that song, If You're Happier and You Know It, Clap Your Hands? You remember that? My pastor would say to the Christians, he's like, hey, if you're, if you're here today and you identify as a Christian, if you're happy and you know it, notify your face. This whole thing of walking around just grumpy and Man, God created us to enjoy life on earth, not just look forward to heaven. And it's possible. Jesus tells us right here, you want to ask Jesus, hey, how do I just have, how do, life sucks, man. How do, I, how do I enjoy it? How do I have fulfillment? Makarios, fulfillment, happiness. How do I have that? And he said, I just told you. The message I shared with my disciples, Matthew 5, 1 through 10, that's how you have it. Blessed are the people that model their life after me and follow this upside-down equation, this upside-down economy that isn't based on you and what you can accomplish and how you can dominate life. Blessed are you when you submit to me and recognize everything comes from me and then you give it away freely. In a nutshell, that's the message of the gospel And that is what he chose to share with his disciples at the very front end of the greatest sermon ever told. Pretty cool. And for the next few weeks, we're going to drill into different parts of the sermon that come from here, that that come after this. But for today, I hope what you hear is that God is for you. He's got a plan and a purpose for your life, and he wants you to enjoy it. He wants you to be happy. And regardless of where you're at in your spiritual journey, you can start right now. And in not too far from now, you can begin to experience more and more fulfillment, more and more happiness in your life, regardless of your circumstances. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a little bit of time 
to dim the lights. The band is going to come up and join me and lead us in a few, mu uh, a few songs. And I really hope you will take a couple minutes to reflect on what we, hear, what we heard. My hope is not because of me, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit, you will internalize something and walk out of here a changed person. And so we've got a few different ways for you to respond in worship. You see right in front of me, there's a bunch of candles, and you can come up and light one of these as a symbol of a prayer that you're praying for yourself or for someone else. Uh, in the back of the room, there will be some members of our prayer team. If you just want a, a, a person, another person to stand with and pray with, someone to pray for you, please go back there. On both left and right sides of the room are communion tables to participate in the Lord's Supper. If you are a Christ follower, I invite you to join me in celebrating that. And then lastly, uh, many of you come prepared with your tithe and your offering and form a physical check or something like that on Sunday mornings. And so if, if that's you, you can put those in the boxes um, in the back. They have signs on them that say offering and cards. Oh, and speaking of cards, Allison mentioned those cards. If you filled out your connection card and you have a prayer request, something that we, uh, any, any part that you filled out, you can drop those off in the back as well, either now or on your way um, out. Can I pray for us real quick?